let's pray. Lord, we just ask right now, Jesus, that your word, Lord, would your truth of your word would come into our lives, into our hearts, Jesus, making a difference, displacing the lies, displacing the hurt that might be in us, Lord, displacing bad memories, Lord, that just plague us possibly. Lord, let your truth come into our heart, into our lives, and our minds, Jesus. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for it. In your name I pray, amen. Well, we're hitting the ground running back in Matthew again. And we left off in Matthew 15, 28, I believe. And now we're going to pick up what comes after Matthew 15, 28. It could be Matthew 16, 1, but actually it's Matthew 15, 29. <laughs> All right? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in there. You can just kind of follow along. And instead of you guessing what this is going to be about, well, let me tell you up front what this is about. And this is just for my own personal devotions. And sometimes, you know, that's just the best kind of thing. If God is speaking, if it helps me, maybe it'll help you too as well. All right? And so uh, here's, before we kick this off in Matthew 15, 29, have you ever wondered when you're praying, am I praying for the right thing? <laughs> you're like, am I wasting my time? Am I not wasting my time? Is God listening to me? Is God not listening to me? Is God going to answer this prayer? Maybe he wants to wait. And all of these thoughts go through your mind as you're praying, and it just makes prayer really hard whenever all of these doubts are flooding your mind. And then sometimes you think, well, is it even worth praying? I mean, isn't God going to do what God is going to do? You know, why should I be praying? I have questions like that. I have, praying, I have questions like, am I praying the right way? And this one in particular has been coming to me. I'm not sure I pray right sometimes. And I'll, I'll share with you what I mean here in just a second. I think a lot of times I don't pray right. And I bet there's times when you don't pray right. And it nullifies, to a certain extent, what God wants to do. Because when we don't pray right, we don't have the level of faith we need. When we don't have the level of faith we need, God... He acts on behalf of our, he acts in, in reaction to our faith. And so if our prayers are real weak, here's a little wimpy prayer. Check this out. I've, I've mentioned this one before. God, if it's your will, please do it. What kind of prayer is that? If it's your will. And I guarantee if I were to ask you, have you ever prayed that? I bet most all of us, including myself, have prayed that wimpy, pansy, little weak prayer. Because you know what God would tell us? figure out my will and start praying my will. Don't guess. Spend some time with me and I'll show you my will. That's what God tells us. All right? But I have other questions like, I'm not sure if God's going to answer my prayer. Or maybe God says, wait. Or maybe God actually wants me to suffer a little bit and I don't really need to pray for relief because it's his will for me to suffer. That's gone through my mind as well. Maybe it's gone through your mind. I don't know. But I've had that go through my mind. And you know what? Quite honestly, I'm tired of praying in the dark. Not physical dark, but with no understanding. I'm tired of praying with not sure, not being sure. Because the times when I've prayed and I was sure I was praying right, it was powerful. When I was sure I was praying the right way, you talk about confident prayer. It was unbelievable. And so the title of my message today, 
next Sunday and possibly the following Sunday is the secret to praying powerfully. The secret to praying powerfully. We as Christians should be powerful in our prayer time. Power, effective. Not, not powerful in that every time you pray, you get this experience with God, or you get the, you, have you ever gotten the holy goosebumps where, you know, it's, you, you, your hairs stand on end, and you're like, ugh, you're all freak. You know, I'm not talking about that power. I'm talking about effective prayer where God answers prayer. Like what Tina was talking about. She prayed with this person, and the next day God did something. That's powerful prayer. That's powerful prayer. And so there's a secret to praying powerful. In fact, there's actually some secrets to praying powerful, and we're going to talk about those starting today. Let's start off in Matthew 15, 29. And all I'm going to tell you today is there's something we've got to realize about God that changes the way that we pray. That's, that's all we're headed for. And it's gonna, I'm going to tell it to you over and over again. At first, some of us aren't going to accept it. At first, some of us are going to think, no, you're, you're full of hogwash. But listen to what the Bible says. And by the way, I'm starting to do this. I'm setting aside everything that I've learned, and I'm reading the Bible, at face, taking it at face value. I'm not thinking about what I was trained or how I learned or what I heard. What does the Bible say? And let me just take that because that's, that's the truth. Matthew 15, 29. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to stop there. Did anybody pray that Jesus would leave there and go by the Sea of Galilee? Did anybody suggest to Jesus that he do this? No. Jesus got up and did what he was going to do, regardless of what other people thought or said or cared about. Jesus took the initiative, all right? So let's, you'll hear this message over and over again this morning. You're going to get tired of it, all right? But the Bible is full of it. Then he went up to a mountainside. Did anybody ask him to go up the mountainside? No. He went because it was his plan to go up. It was his decision to go up. It was his prerogative to go up. He went up the mountainside and sat down. A great or great crowds came to him. <laughs> All right? In John 12, 32, you can just jot this down. You don't have to turn to it. It says, Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to me. They won't make their way to me. They won't decide to come to me. I will draw all mankind to me. And the word in, that, in Greek there for draw is actually drag. If they won't come to me, I'm going to drag them to me. <laughs> God is in control. We're not in control. God is in control. He takes the initiative, and this verse is speaking of him being lifted up on a cross and providing the sacrifice. So that's what lifted up. When he's lifted up, he will draw all mankind to himself. Small, great, you know, overweight, skinny, poor, rich, of every race, every, every language. He draws all mankind. And those that don't come to him, he goes ahead and drags to him. That sounds like a sovereign God to me. That sounds like a God who takes the initiative to bring people to himself. An amazing God. So these great crowds came to him, as, as the scripture suggests in John 12, 32. They brought the lame, they brought the blind, they brought the cripple, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet. And what did he do? He healed them. 
insinuating he healed them all. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Jesus standing there? Here's a lame man, jumps up, walking around. A mute person can't talk, all of a sudden talking. Didn't have to learn, go through speech therapy. Didn't have to do anything. All of a sudden speaking. Unbelievable miracles, left and right. Verse 31. The people, of course, were amazed when they saw the mute speaking. And let me back up here. Jesus healed them of his own his own initiative. He said, I'm going to heal. Boom, they got healed. He took the initiative and healed all those people that were brought to him. The cripple were made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing. They praised the God of Israel. And they're out in the desert here. They're out kind of away from everything. We find out there's over 4,000 people there crazy atmosphere, amazing atmosphere there. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. What does Jesus say? I don't want them to go away hungry. Were the disciples saying there, Jesus, please feed these people? No, the disciples were saying in the next one, they said, how do we have enough bread bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? The disciples were not there interceding for these 4,000 hungry people. Jesus took the initiative to feed those people. I hope you begin to see what I'm talking about. We think we got to pull God along and God say, no, fall in line. I have a plan. I have an initiative. I want you to follow my plan. So he says, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asks. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. This is the God that we serve. He's in charge. You and I are here today because God brought us here today. He brought us here today. You're not here because of some accident or fluke or somebody invited. You you came here because God brought you here today. Whether you've been here a hundred times or this is your first time, God brought you here today. He takes the leadership. He takes the initiative. We've got to start following God that way. Tells the crowd to sit down. He took the seven loaves and fish. He gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples, and they in turn to the people. What did he say? He said, disciples, go hand this out. There wasn't any ifs, ands, or buts. The disciples were saying, should we do this? Should we not? No, he said, go do it. God, Jesus, his son, took the initiative that day to do what needed to be done. So, in verse 37, these people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. So you could, you could guess maybe 12,000. That's a lot of people for just seven, seven fish and a few loaves. After Jesus sent the crowd away, Look at this. We think, well, we got to pray for this. We got to pray for that. We got to pray. You know what? We need to find out what we need to pray for before we just start praying. Because Jesus said, all right, we fed them, leave, go back to your homes. He took the initiative. He was directing, he was correcting, he was sending off, he was bringing in, he was feeding, he was healing. He was always in charge. Do you think that's changed today? Has something changed today to where God isn't in charge anymore and we're supposed to tell God what to do? Has anything changed? Isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Our God doesn't change. So what happens? 
sends the crowd away. He takes the initiative. He gets in a boat and went to some of the vicinity of another place. I hope you get the picture. Jesus takes the initiative. That's the way things are supposed to be. And until we realize that, we see chaos. There's no, there's no order. There's nobody in charge. I need to pray for this. I need to pray for that. No, no, no. We need to figure out where Jesus is going and fall in line with Jesus. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a lot more order that we see in our lives. Things are going to change as a result. So we move into Matthew chapter 16. Isn't this fun? You just kind of walk through the Bible and the Holy Spirit starts teaching you and showing you and blessing you. I didn't get a chance to study this much. I was looking at all this stuff, seeing this last night at about 11 o'clock last night. Let me tell you what, when you sit and read the Bible anytime, God will show you something. He will show you something, but you got to crack the Bible open to get something good out of it. So chapter 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, these people were religious folks. They were the religious Jewish folks of that time, the preachers, the pastors of that time. Not a good group of people. They'd gotten over-religified. There's no such a word, but they'd gotten too much religion in their life. And so these, these, group, these group of leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. All right. Uh, they were always threatening. They were always trying to corner Jesus. They were always, they were trying to kill Jesus. They were trying to find a means to shut this guy up because he was a far greater figure to the people than they themselves were. So there's a lot of jealousy. In verse two, Jesus replies, when the evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. So in other words, they had means of foretelling what the weather was going to be like. All right, just like we have, you know, the weatherman that, that gives us this. They interpret the signs, the weather signs or signals. In verse 3, uh, excuse me, uh, continue in verse 3. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And I want to pause there again. In Psalms 31.15, the Bible says, my times are in God's hands. My times are in God's hands. Whose hands? God's hands. Do I get to dictate the changing of the seasons in my life? I'm not talking about fall, spring, summer, winter. I'm talking about the seasons that you go through in life, a season of sickness or a season of injury, or a season of prosperity, a season of success, a season of marriage, a season of loss, a season of having kids, or your kids growing up. Are those seasons something that I come up with? No. The Bible says, my times are in God's hands. He takes the initiative to change the seasons in my life. He does. My times are in his hands. A time of revival. Do we pray in revival into our country? No, you do not. Good grief. You don't do that. God sends revival and you start praying. <laughs> He's in charge. He's in control. You know, his hand causes us to start praying. We don't move the hand of God by our prayer. God's hand starts moving and we start praying. Do you get it? 
God is in control. And we need to find out where he's headed. He's doing something right now. We need to know what he's doing and pray about what God is doing. Pray about what God is doing. Acts 1.7, it says, he said to them, it is not for you to know, this is Jesus speaking, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that who? The Father has set by his own authority. The day of Pentecost came because God said, it's time for the day of Pentecost to come. And he said, yeah, I want you to be waiting because this is what's about to happen. God's initiative to pour out his spirit had nothing to do with men's design or desire. That was God's design and desire. And there happened to be a, a select few, 120 people that stuck around and happened to be there at the time of Pentecost. And God blessed them for it. God blessed them for it. At one point, it sounds like there must have been about 500. But it shrunk down. Do you want to be one of the people that are waiting for God's initiatives to begin to happen? I do. I want to be one of those people. I want to be at the right place, at the right time, doing the right things. When God says, it's time. Who says it's time? I don't. God says it. God says it. But I want to be waiting on God. And we'll get more to that in just a second. So we see in verse, verse 5, then we, we went across to the lake, across the lake, and the disciples forgot to take bread. This is a funny, we're going to go down a rabbit trail in this one a little bit, but they forgot to take bread. Jesus says to them, be careful. Now, if Jesus says to you, be careful, your ears kind of perk up, right? Warning, warning, warning. And that's what I find God puts yield signs in our lives before he puts a stop sign. He keeps telling you, be careful, be careful, be careful. And then boom, there's a stop sign. If you run that, you're going to get run over by a truck. So listen to God's warning signs. But Jesus says, be careful. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right. And he just talked to them. So they kind of got alone. And he's, he's referring back to his conversation with them. They discuss this amongst themselves and says, they said, it's because we don't have any bread. <laughs> All right. So the, picture this. The disciples had just come off of a massive miracle where loaves and bread had been, you know, uh, what do you call it? Multiplied. I said duplicated, but multiplied. All right. Guess what? Two, three weeks before, God had, Jesus had done the same thing with five loaves and two bread, I believe. I have there five loaves and two fishes, and he'd done it twice. And here the disciples are thinking that Jesus is getting on to them for not having bread. Can you imagine the irony, <laughs> the foolishness? Let me tell you what if God healed you of cancer and it comes back, he can heal you again. You know, he can do it again. If God did it once, if God did it twice, he'll do it a third time. Don't you think for a second that because all that flood of mess comes back into your life that God is through with you. He will do it over and over and over again until the work is completely finished. God hasn't given up. You don't give up either. Does that make sense? So he says to them, you guys, come on. In fact, here's Jesus's highest insult for a, God, for a godly person. Oh, you of little faith. Did you know that God insults you sometimes? It's like a little spat on the, on the bottom. Hey, stop it. Cut it out. Come on. You got bigger faith than that. Get up. 
Move on. Stop getting down. Oh, you of little faith, he says. He says, why are you talking amongst yourselves about not having bread? Do you not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves and the 5,000 people and the basketfuls that you gather? Don't you remember the seven loaves and the 4,000? How many basketfuls you gathered? I'm going to take care of you. How many of you are worried about something this morning? Be honest. Raise your hand if you're worried about something. God's saying, stop worrying, you guys. I've done it before. I'll do it again. And guess what? I'll do it in the future even yet again. I've got you covered. All right? He says, how many basketfuls? He says, don't you understand? He said, I'm not talking about that anyways. But here was a little lesson. But here's where I'm headed with it. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And in Mark's account of this story, he says, be on your guard against Herod's yeast as well. And you're thinking, what on earth are we talking about? Crowns, incense, yeast. What's going on here? What is this, what is this talking about? In verse 12, it explains it a little bit. He says, then they understood that he was not talk, telling them to be on their guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. All right, the teaching, and also the teaching that you would have learned from King Herod, who was the king at that time, very worldly, ungodly, vicious person. He said, be careful. There's two types of teaching out there. You got to be on your guard against these two teachings. Well, what does yeast do? Well, I've never baked a thing in my life, but I've watched my daughters bake and my wife bake, and yeast gets into the dough and it spreads all into the dough. Somehow it makes its way as you, I don't know what you do. What do you do with, knead it, all right? As you knead it, all right, that yeast gets all through it. If you don't watch it, teachings from this world and teachings from religion will get into you and it will mess you up. It'll mess you up. You say, well, I thought this is a church. Isn't this religion? No, it is not religion. We don't want to be religious. Religion stinks. It messes people up. I used to have this guy tell me, religion's good, it makes people good. No, it doesn't. Religion messes people up because it blocks you off from relationship. Religion isn't relationship with God. Religion is you trying to earn your way into God's favor. You can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. He's reached out to us in love and pulled us in he took the initiative. Did you save yourself? Did you find God? No, God found you. He found you. He's the one that went out and rescued you when you couldn't rescue yourself. He's the one that rescued me when I couldn't help myself. He takes the initiative. Well, that's what Jesus, part of what Jesus might have been saying here is be careful with religion. Religion thinks you can find God and earn your way into heaven. Uh-uh-uh, no, no. God takes the initiative with you. He goes out and finds you. And then he said, be careful with, with um, Herod's yeast, <laughs> Herod's teaching, which was a, a worldly thought process. And we, it's alive and well today. They're self-made people. That's what the world would tell you. Self-made millionaires, self-made success stories. That is a bunch of hogwash. The Bible says everything that you have, you've received from God. And we're going to talk more about that next, next, uh, next week. All right? Be careful with that teaching that you can produce something out of yourself that's good. You can't do it. 
You can only receive from God and his goodness, his righteousness. The Bible says his righteousness is a gift from God. It's not something that can be produced within yourself. It's God's grace, his gift. And so we got to be very careful when we believe that we can be a self-made success. We cannot, in fact, be a self-made success. And so all these teaching, you know, you get a real, this guy that, you know, he's bought millions of dollars of real estate. So he's going to put on this seminar and show you how to pick your house and start having positive cash flows. Well, guess what? God gifted that guy with what he's doing. And you may not be able to do the same thing that he can do. <laughs> Let God give you your gift and you succeed in what God has given you to do. And don't try to be something that you're not. Be who God has called you to be. He takes the initiative in each and every one of our lives. So Jesus said to these guys, oh, you of little faith. Well, let's, let's figure out what faith is here. Is faith saying, you know what? I want a Maserati. I want it red. I want it brand new. I want it black leather interior. And my faith is I'm going to talk to God and he's going to give me that car. Is that faith? No, that's stupidity. <laughs> that's not faith. Give me a break. Faith is figuring out what God's plan is and following God through thick and thin on that plan, God's plan, God's initiative. He's, he's making a way. He's cutting a path. He's blazing a path. Am I willing to follow God down that path whose initiative, he's the one that's taking it? Does that make sense? That's faith. Faith is figuring out what God wants and doing what God wants. Man, that's, that's mountain-moving faith. If God moves up and says, you know what? So-and-so has cancer. I, I've given my son to die on the cross, not only for sin, but also for sickness. And you know what? I want you to start praying that that mountain of cancer be moved out of the way and that person's body be completely healed. That's faith. You just heard from God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the message of Christ. That's why we've got to find out where God is headed and follow him in that path. That's what faith is, is letting God take the initiative and following right after him, doing the things that we see God doing. All right, God, listen to this statement. God initiates everything. God initiates everything. That's a tough pill to swallow for the religious person and for the worldly person because both want to believe that we initiate things. But that's simply not the case. That is simply not the case. Let me give you some thoughts to see if this, this gets us to where we need to be. In, in Hebrews 11.6, it says, Without faith, as we've just defined it, it is impossible to please God. Okay, the person that wants to go out and pray a Maserati into their life, they're not following God. They're following their own desire. All right? Does God want you to have good things? Of course he wants you to have good things. But he's already planned for those good things in your life. And you need, just need to discover them. But it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Seek him. Now, seeking, that indicates that somebody's leading. <laughs> I'm seeking God's leadership. I'm seeking God's initiative. I'm seeking God's prerogative in my life. 
And you know what? He's going to reward that kind of attitude. It's the person that's out there in left field trying to get what they want and calling that faith, that is simply not faith. We have faith in God, not in, not in ourselves. Listen to this. I'm going to say it again. And this has just got to revolt some people because this is what we've been taught in church. But, but, but you know what? Jesus said, be careful with religious teaching. Be careful with religious teaching. Prayers don't move the hand of God. God hands moves, and we start praying. <laughs> we don't have the initiative to move God. All my life, I thought I could pull God. Come on, God, come over here. Come over, do this, do this. Heal this person, save them. all good things. And God's saying, don't pull me. I want you to fall in line. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to teach you how to do things. I'm going to direct your life. That's a big difference from how a lot of churches believe. We need to fall in line with God. <laughs> He's out there moving and going. We need to get in line with him. Let me, let me tell you this. We don't, we, don't need to get on, we don't need God to get on our bandwagon. We need to get on God's bandwagon. All right, let's continue on in verse 13. If you're not there yet, I... You're going to be there by the end of this sermon, man. I'm going to give you so many examples, we're not going to know what to do with them all. Verse 13, then this is in, I'm back in uh, Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 13. Then Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus said, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Who took the initiative to reveal this to Peter? God did. He didn't dream this up on his own. He didn't hear it in a church service. God showed this to him. God took the initiative to show this to him. So he said, uh, he said, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Who's going to build the church? God is going to build the church. He's going to lead the church. He's going to make the church what it needs to be. There was a, there was a book a long time ago that was written. Um, it's, it was called When God Builds a Church. And it was talking about this Church of Christ church in Louisville, Kentucky that has, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And I read it a long time ago, and I was thinking, but yeah, but how does this work? What, what are we supposed to do? That's not the point. God builds his church. He'll tell us slowly but surely, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. He's the builder of the church. So then he says, uh, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anybody that he was the Messiah. And here, here's some final thoughts. Um, this reads a little bit differently uh, in the original text because this, this leads us to believe that I can bind something here on earth. And you're wondering, what do you mean by bind? But I can prohibit something here on earth. And that means because I did it here on earth, it's prohibited in heaven. 
That's, that's the way the scripture reads, how I just read it in the New International Version. The reality is what this is saying is whatever's been bound in heaven first, I can bind on, on earth. It's heaven's initiative and prerogative to bind certain things. Therefore, I need to follow suit and do the same thing here on earth. Great example would have been the abortion cause back in the 70s. Heaven was binding that and saying, no, no, no. There's nobody here on earth saying no, no, no. We didn't stand up to it. And what, what do we have? Millions of little ones, their lives snuffed out before they even see the light of day. Heaven bound it. Heaven prohibited it. But there's nobody here on earth saying, I'm following Christ's initiative and saying, I am standing against this through my vote. I'm standing against this through prayer. I'm standing against this through whatever other means I have, nonviolent means, to, to, to prohibit this. We need to do the same thing these days. What is heaven bound? What is heaven prohibited? And I need to be prohibiting that here on earth through my prayers. Through my prayers. Does that make sense? Heaven moves first. I move second. It's not me loosing here on earth and telling God what to do. Let me read it to you in the Amplified Version. Matthew 16, 19, it said, I will give you the keys, that's the authority of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind, that means to forbid, declare improper, unlawful on earth, will have already been bound in heaven. Heaven moves first, I move second. And whatever you loose, that means to permit or declare lawful on earth, will have already been loosed in heaven. We need to find out what God is doing and get on the same page with God. Let me ask you these questions. Who initiated creation? God did, right? Who implemented a plan of salvation for mankind? God did. Who told Noah to build an ark? God did. Who told Abram to go to Canaan and walk the breadth and length? And God did, right? Who told Joseph? Who exalted Joseph to the second in command over Egypt? God did. Who initiated the rescue of over 2 million Jews uh, from Egypt? God did. Who chose Joshua to conquer Canaan? God did. Who picked Saul as king over Israel? God did. Who picked David? God did. Who initiated the destruction of Jerusalem because it was so sinful? God did. Who revealed himself to Daniel? God did. Who told Nehemiah and, and Ezra to go back and rebuild Jerusalem? God did. Who, who sent his son to the earth to live and struck, suffer, die, and be raised and exalted? God did. Who chose the 12 disciples? God did. Who sent the Holy Spirit in power on the day of Pentecost? God did. Who established his church and sent out missionaries? God did. And who decides when he's going to return? God does. So what on earth causes us to think that we have such a say in our prayers to instruct God on what he needs to do. I, I fear that I waste my time many time trying to impose my will on God and say, the word of God says this, yes, but what is the Holy Spirit doing right, right now in that situation? And I need to know what God is doing and fall in line with God. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, what? The author, this is the New King James Version, the author and the finisher of our faith. Who authored my faith? Jesus did. He started it. He's going to perfect it. In the NIV, it says, he's the pioneer of my faith, the perfecter of my faith. He's taking the initiative. He's leading the charge. 
So we look in our own lives, and I think about my life. Every step of the way, God took the initiative. He did. There's not a single thing that I coerced God into doing in my life. Not one. God did it all. And he's blessed me as I've obeyed him and fallen in line with him. He's blessed me beyond my wildest imaginations. Because in certain times, I've let him take the lead, and it's always worked out really good for me whenever I do that. Really, really good. He called me. I didn't call myself. I didn't even want to read the Bible. He made me want to read the Bible. So that was him. All right. He's healed me several times. He's given me kids. He's guided me. He's directed me. He's lovingly disciplined me. He's caused me to succeed. He's caused me to prosper. He's helped me. It's all been God. So why am I thinking it's going to be different in the future? It's going to be him in the future as well. So my prayers, my point is this morning, my prayers should reflect that reality. My prayers should reflect that reality. If, if I think I'm going to pray hard for four hours to get what I think needs to happen, I might be wasting my time. <laughs> what if I took three and a half hours and said, God, I'm just going to spend time with you. You're my best friend. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to enjoy you. I'm going to just enjoy your presence. You know, in those three and a half hours... And that's a long time. I don't, I don't think I've ever prayed three and a half hours. All right, so let's say 30 minutes, all right? I'm, I'm praying for 30 minutes, and I just take that time just to enjoy God. I'm not begging God for anything. I'm not interceding. I'm not sweating. I'm just, God, I love you. You're my friend. And I spend 90% of my time just enjoying God, worshiping him, loving him. You know what? God's going to start whispering into my ear, hey, pray for this thing. Hey, pray for that thing. Hey, I'm working over here. Pray for this person right now. You talk about effective prayers, powerful prayers, because you're lining up with what God wants to do. Unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. I'll end there and mention the rest of this next Sunday. Let's bow our heads right now.